Father in heaven, we thank you for a chance to open your scriptures. We thank you for the opportunity to pause that we can gather here today and think upon the things that matter for eternity. Lord, we're distracted by everything else in the world all week long. And then we come today knowing that you have provided this time for us to stop and to think upon things above and to sing to you and to bring our hearts and lay them on the altar to you. So we pray that you would use this time in affecting your cause in us and conform us to the image of your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Confession questions number 42 through 44. Walking in here to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. We started to look at it a little bit last week. But now we're kind of really starting to dive in. And then after this, it just goes one commandment after another. And we got to think, why, why teach somebody the Ten Commandments? If the catechism is a teaching tool, I mean, do we, do we, isn't there better stuff to teach? I mean, sometimes we think that, maybe, I don't know. But question 42 says this. It says, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? How would you summarize them? Well, the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. Now, where did the Westminster Divines get that brilliant summation from? <laughs> they plagiarized it right from Jesus, right? Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so when the conservatives heard that Jesus shut up the liberals, they gathered together. So they all get together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what, which is the great commandment of the law? Thinking, like, this will show this guy to be an offshoot. This will show him to be kind of a, a sect leader, that you take one little weird thing that you find in the Bible, and that's what you make your identity all about, right? Like, you're, you're a head-covering church, or you're a foot-washing church, or you're whatever. Like, you're just some weird little offshoot, and we're going to catch you in that, that you're not really all about all that God has to say. Right? Snakes. That's what they're trying to do. So Jesus is going to answer like a God would. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like to it. You shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the guy thinks he's going to corner him, thinks he's going to show him to be some obscure kind of biblical isolationist, like pulling something weird out, like all this love and healing and, you know, whatever. But he doesn't. Summarizing Scripture, it says the, whole, the law and the prophets depend on this. These two greatest commandments. There's two greatest commandments. So for our purposes, though, the question that we were asked is, what's the sum of them? Why is it important that the Ten Commandments be summed up? Why do they need to be summed up? I mean, think about what they are. What, what did Jesus just say? It's love the Lord your God and you love your neighbor as yourself. What else is there in life that's not in those two realms? I mean, I mean consider everything that we have. We, we need, once we know who God is, then what do we owe him? What is man? What, who is mankind? And what do I owe them, him and her? What else is there? Do we, do we owe anything to creation? Well, if we do, why? 
so that my brother can also eat or have lumber for his house or land to build. It's for other people or for the glory of God that I want to do this because he told me to take care of the planet, right? So all of these things, it all breaks down. It's the, it's the essential nature of just functioning in the world. And so what we typically do in the church, what we typically do is we have broad generalities that we kind of live by, like tropes, like love one another and those kinds of things. And what we need to do is take generalities and go to the specifics. See, but these Pharisees, they, are, they live in the specifics, and Jesus blew it out to the general in a way that they had never done before. They were so meticulous and fastidious, they're taking out a, a, a card and separating out a tenth of their spices. You pour the spices out on the table and measure out a tenth to tithe that tenth. But Jesus just zoomed the whole lens back out in an extremely helpful way because when you think about the, the commandments we talked a little bit about a couple weeks ago, the two tables of the law, remember talking about that? Commandments one through four are all vertical. It's man to God. Commandments five through ten is horizontal, man to man. Right, mankind to mankind. So what other relationships or duties even compare to these? Doesn't all that matters in life fit into those two categories? How do I relate to God and how do I relate to humans? What, 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 or what do I do to humans? I mean, everything else that you could think of, but possibly it just what, how, how you deal with nature or, or how you deal with planets or everything else has some kind of impact on humans and something before God. And knowing God allows us to know man, and knowing man enlightens us to knowing God. How many of us, after having kids, started getting more vivid perspectives on God as the Father? I know more of the experience of man, and now I'm like, wow, I see a little bit more of God in the Scriptures. And then the reverse, like the more I know of God, the more I understand myself. I see His holiness, and I just can't help but see my sinfulness. So these two, these two summarizations... Summaries or s summations. There it is. There it is. I found it. I'm circling it, but I got it. They're important. There's no such thing as a moral, an amoral law. Have you ever heard the argument you can't legislate morality? What law is there that's not moral? Why do we not speed? So that we don't spin out of control and kill somebody else. Why are there building codes? Because if there weren't, somebody could get hurt. Every law, everything goes back to something moral. There is no law that's not moral. And so if we're going to talk about the law of God, we have to realize that all laws are moral. Everything that we do is moral. And now we're thinking in a secularizing society only vertically or horizontally, man to man. But follow me down this, this line of thinking. All laws are moral, and if morality then is an inevitable reality, where did morality come from? If the reason why we have to have a law that says you can't steal from stores, why? Because you're hurting the business owner, and then we all agree on that. Then where did that morality come from? It has to come from somewhere, so it came from God. And therefore, if it comes from God, then who is God? And then now there's another being that we have to understand and figure out how to relate to. What do we owe him? So you, you can't get away from these ten 
and the two tables. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We, I, I, sometimes when I'm talking with somebody in this camp of legislating morality and forcing your Christian beliefs and blah, 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 and all this stuff, or even people that are getting in like weird anarchy stuff or atheists can be moral, I just say, okay, was the Holocaust wrong? And I'm like, yeah, of course it was wrong. Why? Why? Well, because, I mean, he was just killing all those innocent people. I'm like, well, he was stronger than them. Doesn't survival of the fittest say that that's who gets to win? That if I can oppress you, if I can force my will upon you, then I should. You're weak. And why would we propagate anything weak? Animal kingdom doesn't do it. Why should I do it? So what's, why, why was the Holocaust wrong? Well, because, well, because it was. Not, you don't have anything to stand on. Or any time a professional athlete gets in the news for like, physically abusing his girlfriend or wife or something, everybody across the board is appalled. That guy loses his job. He's blackballed. Everybody hates him. Never plays football again. Everybody's disgusted. And why is that wrong? Don't we see that in nature? Don't male gorillas do that to female gorillas all the time? Male lions and female lions? Hey, the bigger and the stronger, they force their wills upon them, and they have wounds, and they're beat up. So why can you say it's wrong? You, you, you think that that should be illegal, and then that should be uh, condemned. You're legislating morality in some way, but you have no reason, no foundation to legislate morality from. I mean, the more that we dig down into, the, the Ten Commandments are so beautifully simple, and to categorize the four major principles that can be extrapolated from about how we relate to God, and then the six major principles on how we relate to mankind, you can distill it down to ten, and everything else that we could possibly think of and consider fits into there. And Jesus can just go, yeah, it was written in Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two depends the whole law. Upon these two depends any kind of functioning civilization or society. The people who ignore those, they have no business, they have no commerce, they have nothing. See, everyone sees and acknowledges the second table of the Ten Commandments, right? Murder, adultery, thieving, lying, coveting. Everybody gets that. Maybe not coveting so much, but they get the second table. But... Until you submit to and enjoy the first table, the, the commands about God, then you'll never carry out the second table. Everybody wants a society where nobody is committing sexual infidelity or hurting people sexually. Everybody wants a society where murder is eradicated, and that never happens. Nobody's stealing from anyone. I mean, how many songs get written on that every year? How many times has that been tried? But if you have no fear of God, then you will have no enduring love for man. It's codependent. If you don't, why would I do anything to you? Because whatever you, don't have, you have, I don't have. And I'm out for me. But if I fear God and I acknowledge what he's given to me, then I have some kind of love for my fellow man. Th this is why communism never works. Because you're trying to have the second table of the law and completely and openly eradicating the first table. All communist societies start out with an atheistic perspective. There is no God. Nevertheless, we should always treat everybody fairly, and everybody should be equally provided for. Nobody should oppress anyone else. Nobody should be suppressed by systems and things like that. But every time they try it, what happens? 
the pigs put on clothes and walk around like the humans. Animal Farm? Yeah, see, Millie knew that. The English teacher. Everybody should read Animal Farm because it's just so no acknowledgement of the first table then the second table is impossible for you to do nevertheless everybody feels we want the first table i don't want to have married someone and then they commit adultery on me i don't want to have been walking down the street and then been mugged or murdered everybody wants that but you can't have that without the first god in his infinite wisdom summarizes it down into 10 10 principles that everything else can fit into but before we get to those, you've got to look at the preface. Question 43. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord your God. We have to skip that when we read the Ten Commandments. If we read the Ten Commandments, we skip that. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But it mattered to the Westminster Divines to stop and say what is the preface. First, to call it the preface, and then secondly, to point it out. Why? Let's see why it should matter to us. That's where question 44 comes into play. What does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all his commandments. Now, you can read that and go, okay, it's an exchange system. God is God. We're not. He fixed it for us, and so now we owe him, and we got to just do these things because that's what he said. That's a pretty simplistic way to look at it, a pretty depressing way to look at it. We're going to take a fuller perspective on it. Let's first ask the question, when giving the law, the Ten Commandments that we already talked about summarize the moral character of God and all of what could ever happen in any kind of relationships here on earth between man to man and man to God, why is it important that God is reiterating who he is and what he's done before he says anything about what you're supposed to do? Why is that important to reiterate that? What impact does it have on our understanding of the law or our reason to obey it, for God to say what he says in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It gives us the chief reason to obey. Gratitude. The power and the grace of God and the gratitude for receiving that grace through his power. So here's how Zechariah summarizes it. Not the Zechariah the minor prophet, Zechariah the dad of John the Baptist. In Luke 1, 67 through 75, Zechariah is, he, his mouth is finally opened. He's, he's finally endured the punishment of not believing God that he's going to have a child. And now his mouth is open, so then he prays and he prophesies in front of this group of people when his son is born. So he says, and and his father, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and then here it begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. That's Jesus. At the mouth of his holy prophets from old. So Jesus is in the Old Testament. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of of all who hate us, I mean the devil and his minions, to, and to show the mercy 
promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, here it is, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Blessed be God for what he's done. He's visited and redeemed his people through the promised seed that came from David, that came from Abraham. And what do we do in response to that? We serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness for our whole lives. We serve and obey God without fear. Now, this is, there's, there's two kinds of realms of fear. We're being told here we serve without fear. Then other places we're being told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to fear God. Now, there's, so there's two fears here. This one that says that we're without it, that's a servile fear. The one we're commanded to have is a familial fear. So servile, think of a truly abused, terrorized, horrified slave versus a son with a father who has expectations for him but loves him and provides for him. A fear of a reverence versus a horror. So we don't have that horror from God anymore. We just have a reverence and an awe of God. Just like he brought Israel out of slavery to a place where they can obey, he did the same for us. Because it says in verse 74 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. We couldn't serve him in the hand of our enemies before, just like they couldn't in Egypt. They were owned by Pharaoh. We couldn't believe or please God as sinners because we were in unbelief and we were owned by sin. He saved us and made us able to obey. Didn't make us buy our own freedom, just like he didn't make Israel buy their ethics at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Remember who I am and what I did. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh, the one who always is. I am eternally present, present tense. And I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You're not slaves anymore. Now you're free to actually obey. So this is the New Testament perspective that Peter has. In 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19, the apostle says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. So we're starting with grace here. That will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Now here's the follow-up to grace. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, meaning the, the desires you had as a slave to sin. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written in, he's quoting from Leviticus 11.44 and really all over Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. So here's the good kind of fear, the familial fear throughout the time of your exile, meaning the time that you live here on earth, knowing that you were, here's the reason why, you were ransomed from the feudal ways. You were bought from those feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, meaning just the sin you inherited as a human. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That's not what God paid for that freedom, that ransom. But with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So it's grace, God's ransom, and then what do we do in response as obedient children? We be holy. We be like dad. Dad is holy. So therefore, we are holy. We strive for that. And that, that's not a new thing that Peter's making up. This is what the book of Leviticus is all about. It's about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the, ga- the chasm between them. See, we were bought. You were bought with Christ's blood for a reason, to be holy. You were freed not to do what you want, but to do what you ought. Remember, that's the whole thing in the book of Exodus we looked at two weeks ago. They weren't free to worship. They're in, is- they're in Egypt and they can't worship because Pharaoh's cracking the whip. And he's, they've got to work for Pharaoh. They're not free to worship God. Now when they're out, now they're free to worship. Finally. Think about the blessing that the fourth commandment would have been to those people. Nobody can come and make you work on this day. You are free to worship me and enjoy my blessing. The Sabbath, there's a prohibition on anybody forcing me to do anything but consider my God to worship him. That's what they got. So you weren't free, not, we're not free to do what we want, but to do what we ought. We were doing what we wanted when we were in sin. We wanted sin and we just did it. That's all we did. But we were unable to do what we ought to do. See, God saved us to sanctify us and to make us holy. That's why he's reminding us at the beginning of the Ten Commandments who he is and what he's done. So that way you don't read that list like a, oh, here's a chore chart, or here's just a, you know, a transactional thing that I got to do in order to keep God happy and off my back so that he knows I'm thankful that you kept me away from this. But if you know who he is and what he's done, then you understand. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We always memorize 2, 8 through 9, but you never always get to verse 10. And that's the end of the paragraph. That's the huge point. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself, but as the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why? For... For this reason, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what we were made for. But it comes after the grace. It comes after redemption. But you were always supposed to be doing that. You were made to do those good works, just like the people in, in, uh, in Exodus were made to follow the Ten Commandments that God planned before he ever set the ten plagues and had Moses lead them out. That was always the plan. And we do it out of gratitude. We're finally free to serve God. I've wanted to be acceptable to God. I've wanted to be uh, received by God. I've wanted him to hear my prayers and bless my life. And now I'm finally free for that to happen because of who he is and what he's done. That's the preface to the Ten Commandments. We're finally free, and so why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we want to just strive out of gratitude for these ten summations of his perfect character? So let's always meditate on who God is and what he's done. That's Israel's big problem in the, in the Old Testament. When God's chastising them, it always is along the lines of, my people have forgotten me. They've forgotten me. And that's why in the Psalms, you get all this imagery of... of um, of the Exodus. That's the, the most referenced uh, episode in the Old Testament is the Exodus. Because you, you forget who God is and what he's done. That's the biggest picture with the most people in the Old Testament. And what is it? It's just redemption 
to worship. You're freed now, bought with a price to serve. There we go. Well, 